0: All right, so back to cap rate. Uh, so, all right, yes, yeah, so we talked about the formula. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about why it's important, what it is. So, if I'm a, let's just, I know you said that it's you know primarily in commercial. Mm-hmm. Let's try to apply this to residential mm-hmm. investors if we can. When do I use cap rate, or do I not use it? Do <laughs> I just use Some other formula. All right. This is kind of a mailbag episode. Okay. Uh, What is a good cap rate? So once you dig into real estate, you find this term Mm -hmm. quickly. Yep. So... Let's dig into it. Okay. So, cap rate. Let's let's start with that. What is cap rate to begin with?
1: All right. So, cap rate or capitalization rate is a way of valuing real estate, and I'll say more often seen in commercial real estate. It's not something you hear a term you hear thrown around in residential real estate all that much. So, why is that? Why is that? Uh, because. It's a little bit more savvy way of valuing real estate. Um, it takes into account more expenses but that's because ordinarily commercial properties have more expenses associated with them. With a residential real estate investment you're looking at taxes, insurance, property management fees, uh, you know repairs and replacements, Uh, You'll have, of course, some money set aside for vacancy and collections. That expense will vary. Um, And then the big thing for most people is financing, right? So what people are ordinarily ordinarily looking to determine in a residential real estate investment is what's my cash flow? And so they're saying, okay, what's my rental income? And then they're subtracting out those different expenses. Also, subtracting out their mortgage payment to get that cash flow amount. So a place where the cap rate and cash flow or a calculation for cash flow, which would eventually give you a calculation for return on investment will differ is that a cash flow calculation, which leads into a return on investment calculation is looking at your debt service and the cap rate is not. So that's a distinguishing factor between the two ways of evaluating an investment. The cap rate specifically does not include debt service.
0: Which is important because when you're, you know, you want to look at, you want to look at a rental property as a little business.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It pumps out some money. Mm-hmm. So if you have, you know, it's, it's a good way to compare um, investment opportunities without correct because your financing could differ.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right. If you right. have, if you have right. the
0: same exact property and it has the same exact cap rate, but now mm-hmm. all of a sudden you take into consideration the financing in the bank gives you you know 4% on one and 14% on another for mm-hmm. some reason. You obviously going to get really different numbers. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that financing isn't important. Obviously mm-hmm. you want to get a good deal, but it's a good way to measure just the investment opportunity itself. Correct. Like how how good is this little business that I'm going to
2: buy? Mm-hmm.
0: So it's a okay, so it's a it's a a formula used to evaluate investment opportunities right. without without the financial financing portion of
1: right it. and so that formula is just cap rate equals net operating income divided by value or purchase price when it's when a property is being offered for sale and the listing broker is advertising the property on a commercial property it is standard par for the course for him to advertise the cap rate. And he's doing that based on the list price. So he has several years typically worth of financial data from the seller. Uh, If you've ever looked at any type of large scale commercial property, technically defined as more than four units, so five plus units, but generally speaking, more in the 12 plus into the hundreds of units, you're gonna have years of financial data And there's typically a large prospectus that's put together dozens of pages usually to allow prospective buyers to evaluate that investment. And so it's going to contain all of that financial data, which is used to calculate the net operating income. And then you divide that, and the listing agent would divide that by the purchase price or the asking price, and that yields a cap rate. And he's then going to advertise that cap rate.
0: So before we press record, you said there wouldn't be much. Value and talking about uh, the underlying variable there. Some people say price.
1: Some mm-hmm. people say
0: purchase price. Right. Some people say value. Mm-hmm. Why did you Why did you say that?
1: Well, I don't want to say it's a distinction without a difference, but as I just described, when it's listed for sale, you're using the list price, right? That's how that cap rate is going to be calculated. Now you may say the number that that yields or the cap rate that that yields is not satisfactory to me. And so given that the net operating income is a fixed number, or at least presently fixed, it is what it is right now. If I want to get to my desired cap rate, I need to lower the price. So that's where you would change, you know, list price versus price, you know, your desired price, which would, if the deal worked out, end up being your purchase price. So, the cap rate could vary depending on what the, or would vary depending on what the final purchase price is. And then, you know, as far as value, you know, value is somewhat subjective. Um, Are you using the property appraiser's assessment of value? Are you using a recent appraiser, appraiser's estimate of value? Are you using a broker's estimate of value based on recent comparable sales? So ultimately, that you know, it, it is what it is. Um, the cap rate is NOI divided by for someone looking to buy a property, which is people who are probably going to be watching this, it's going to be NOI divided by purchase price.
0: Purchase price. Um, the reason I was asking because when you think about a property that has to have some improvements done, mm-hmm. and so you could, you could lump in more stuff into price Mm -hmm. like your renovation costs and all that Mm -hmm. you know sometimes i see there's a lot of a lot of people fuss about cap rate sometimes because it feels like it's somewhat uh, it's easier to manipulate or it's advertised as this is what your cap rate could be
1: Mm -hmm. sure
0: (laughs) you know so
1: yeah and that's not uncommon right now uh all throughout well everywhere but it's very common right now in Central Florida in the I-4 corridor, there are a lot of multifamily investments coming up for sale, which are being advertised as potential flips on just a very large scale where the prospective buyer could come in and by virtue of renovating the property, raise the rents. And by raising, that, by raising the rents, you're raising the net operating income and thereby raising the value. Yeah, so when you, when you look at it, you
0: know, we started this off as this is an it's a tool to evaluate investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You got to dig down into the numbers mm-hmm. to figure out the sure. truth. Where mm-hmm. is the actual truth?
1: Sure. Yep. I'm, and in that sense, it's no different than yeah. another, you know, a, a residential investment where you're saying, okay, yes, this is how much it's running for now. If I did X, Y, Z, like we talked about with the Burr strategy and others, is there a way that I can improve the property to increase the rents?
0: So, from a residential perspective, uh, net operating income. So, what do we say? We said management, mm-hmm. right? So we use typically ten percent, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Um, maintenance obviously depends mm-hmm. on the property, but somewhere between five mm-hmm. to ten percent a month,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right, of the of the rent
1: is a fair estimation. Yeah.
0: What else is there? Property taxes, mm-hmm. insurance, and insurance. Mm-hmm. right? So I can't remember off the top of my head, how we estimate those. I think insurance was $90 for every hundred thousand.
1: Well, it would be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, ballpark. ballpark, I mean it varies primarily based on age and the type of construction. Well, in in Florida, roof construction, whether you're hip or gable, will make a big difference, could make a difference as much as 50%. Um, The story I always tell people about that is my old neighbor um, in in our uh, Parkside house had a house that was basically identical to mine, two brick ranches side by side. We bought ours. I helped him buy theirs six, eight months later, something like that. Both about the same square footage within 50 square feet of each other both brick ranches, both built in 1955. The only difference between the two houses was mine was a hipped roof, his was a gable roof. And well, so it's a type of roof construction. Um, A gabled roof is where the roof comes up and it comes back down. Mm -hmm. And what that creates is two ends called the gable where you'll see the siding come up and then there's a top plate and then the siding continue up to the peak of the roof. And that is not as wind resistant as a hip roof where the roof slopes down to the top plate on all sides. So the reason the hip roof is more uh, wind resistant is because on the entire perimeter, you have the roof trusses or the roof rafters coming down and being attached to the top plate. Whereas on the gable roof, you have the up and down where those two gable ends. You don't have the roof roof truss to top plate attachment you've got this gable end where there's basically a a soffit that extends out and is really kind of just hanging there Um, and that is less wind resistant it actually is pretty susceptible to uplift from wind and so that makes a big difference in your insurance
0: which is not what you want in florida with hurricanes and tornadoes right
1: so a hip roof is ideal uh you know my insurance was six hundred dollars a year and his was twelve hundred dollars a year. So it was a big difference. I mean, double.
0: Why don't they just make it code
1: to be hip. Yeah. Be that, hip. that would, that would limit uh, consumer choice. Okay.
0: Saving a few lives here, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look down in, in central and South Florida, you see a lot more hip roofs. Uh, you either see very, very low pitch roofs so that the gable area is very small. Um, or you see hip roofs, you rarely see a real, you know, mansions and, you know, multi-million dollar properties being the exception because you can do a little bit more with a, uh, gable roof than you can with a hip roof aesthetically, but it's more flexible, I should say. But, uh, you get down into central and South Florida and like everything South of Orlando pretty much is concrete block mm-hmm. and it's a hip roof or in the older construction, you know, very, very low pitched gable roofs. Got deep in the Got deep in the
0: <laughs> Um, All right. So back to cap rate. Uh, so, all right. Yes. Yeah, so we talked about the formula. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about why it's important, what it is. So if I'm a, let's just, I know you said that it's, you know, primarily in commercial. Mm-hmm. Let's try to apply this to residential mm-hmm. investors if we can. When do I use Or do I not use it? Do I just use some other formula? Uh,
1: I mean, you can always use it. But for residential investors, typically the financing component is a big component. So if you're just wanting to compare apples to apples across a number of investments, it allows you to do that. Um, And typically your residential investments are going to be pretty comparable financing wise. But let's say you wanted to look at a, so this is where it would come into play. If you wanted to compare whether or not you wanted to buy a multifamily property or a single family property, the financing component is going to differ there because on a single family property, you're going to be able to put down less and your interest rate is going to be a little lower. On a multifamily, you're putting down more, assuming it's not owner-occupied. It's strictly investment. You're putting down 25% versus 15% usually. So there's a difference in the total cash out of pocket, and there's a difference in the interest rate. So typically, a multifamily property is going to carry a higher interest rate because it's considered to be higher risk. So if you wanted to remove that financing component and say, all right, I have the opportunity to buy either a duplex, triplex, quad, or a single-family home or townhouse, let me compare these two investments. Which one
0: produces the best? You
1: could use the cap rate there. Yeah.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so, if we have to answer, what is a good cap rate? Well, let's back up for a second. So, in commercial real estate, or I guess even residential, um, is cap rate a local thing? Like, is, a, is an 8% cap rate in Tallahassee the same as an 8% cap rate in New York City or wherever?
1: Uh, well, in the sense that the measurement or the way of calculating it is the same, yes. In the sense that all markets differ and what is an acceptable return to one local group of people may or may not be an acceptable return to another group of people <coughs> for those reasons, it'll vary. And it'll vary based on the market dynamics, right? And so supply and demand dynamics are the main thing that are going to affect, affect that. So if you've got extremely low supply and extremely high demand, it's going to drive prices up, which is going to drive cap rate down, right? You've got a bigger denominator. And so that cap rate's getting smaller. Right. And and so you've seen that in the last two to five years, especially, but you know, definitely within the last... 12 to 24 months, cap rates have really been driven down because of the increase in prices. And so, what you're looking at is not so much what is a theoretically good cap rate or even what is a historically good cap rate. I mean, historically, you'd say 8 to 12 percent, I mean, 10 really. Um, But again, there's some fluctuation there. Like with any investment, you're looking at, you know, how safe is it and what is my risk tolerance? Some people are willing to accept a higher risk because they want a higher return. Some people want something that's super safe and so they're willing to take a lower return. But generally speaking, I mean, the numbers that I saw before real estate rebounded and prices started to increase pretty significantly, which was that really started in like 2015 here locally. But we saw things really shoot up in 2018, uh, you know, you'd see around 10%, but now, I mean, things are down in the, I've seen commercial investments in the four five, 6% range. So, uh, historically, I mean, if you're really asking that eight to 12 and more often than not 10, but we don't know where we're going in the future. And if you're looking to buy now and you need to buy now, then look out in your market and see what an average cap rate is for the type of property you're trying to buy and be in that range.
0: Yeah. It's the same question as like, you know, what's a good return on my investment. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really, it's really relative Mm -hmm. to the person to some extent.
1: Yeah. And and to the market and where the market
0: is. A younger, in my opinion, a younger, younger people can take more risk. Mm -hmm. Assuming they have, means to do it, mm-hmm. whereas an older person is typically going to slow sure. down their risks so that they don't, right. you know, they have less time.
1: Well, right. So in the event of a loss, there's less time to recover, right? So where are we going? Where are we going? That's a great question. You know, so we we talked um, gosh, six to 12 months ago, I think, about the real estate cycle and where we are in the real estate cycle. And typically at the top of the real estate cycle, you're seeing rapid price appreciation, which is what we're seeing. Uh, you're also seeing uh, supply rapidly increase to try and keep up with demand. Right. Can't get
0: anybody to do construction right now.
1: Uh, <laughs> true. If you can. It's just going to take a while. Um, but we're not really seeing that. So what's interesting is that new there's plenty of new construction going on. But it is not coming online at such a pace that it is significantly impacting the supply and demand dynamics. So we're still, and have been for many months now, at around two months of inventory, right? And so months of inventory is a relative indicator of supply. It's not an absolute number. It's not this is how many homes are for sale. It's a number which is derived by saying, This is how many homes are for sale divided by the rate of sale in the last typically 12 months. So if there are 2,000 homes for sale and in the last 12 months, 6,000 homes have sold. So the rate is 500 sales per month. Your 2,000 sale uh, listings divided by your 500 sales per month is four, right? So you'd have four months of inventory. It means assuming, assuming no new inventory came on the market. How long would it take to exhaust our current inventory, to take the inventory down to zero? Typically, a balanced market where buyers and sellers are on equal footing is considered five, six, seven months. Six is the number most people give. It's right in there. Um, And we're at two. So we are in an extreme seller's market right now. I ran the numbers yesterday for my monthly postcard and the year over year, median home price increase in Leon County was just under 10%. It's like 9.95%. So the median home price in the last 12 months in Leon County has increased almost 10%. That is well in excess of historical norms. That on the face is very disconcerting because it's, it's reminiscent of another bubble, right? You're worried that, okay, well, this, this, Sounds a lot like 2006, 2007, but the supply and demand dynamics are totally different. We didn't have two months of inventory in 2006, 2007. We had six plus months of inventory, and the increase in prices was driven not by low supply, but by artificially excess demand, right? Because of the increase in lending, uh, the decrease in lending standards and the increase in capital availability that we've discussed in other podcasts. So that was an artificial bubble created by an artificial increase in lending availability. Whereas this is pretty organic. Um, supply is low. Demand is still relatively high. So we've got very, why is construction low inventory. not
0: shooting up? Are we out um, of, are, we, are we out of land?
1: We are not well <laughs>
0: are there places to build homes, other places to build homes.
1: That is the difficulty. There are not a lot of places left to build homes where people generally want to live. Uh, there are a few landowners who own a tremendous amount of acreage in the Northeast and it does not appear. There's a investment group out of Colorado that owns close to a thousand, if not two or three thousand. I haven't checked recently acres, uh, north of Bannerman along Thomasville road, basically between Bannerman and, um, is it Iamonia landing or one of the roads that runs, east to west off of Thomasville. I think it connects back to Meridian. Uh, There's some state land up there, but there's an investment firm that owns hundreds and hundreds, if not a few thousand acres there. And they're just, they're just sitting on it. Uh, That and in Leon County specifically, our city and county comprehensive plan is not development friendly at all. And so a lot of builders are moving down or out into counties, which are more builder friendly, um, where the cost of development is less and they can more readily get projects approved and to market. So you've got, I've had one builder tell me specifically, he's leaving Leon County and going down to a because they actually want to do business down there. They, they actually want, uh, to help the builders work through the development and permitting process and bring things to market.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, at some point you need homes, Mm -hmm. you don't have any homes to sell and people can't build them. Something has to give Mm -hmm. your prices either continue to go up or, you know, the city plan gives and it becomes more uh, profitable for builders to build Mm -hmm. Uh, or People leave, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. People start living outside of Tallahassee.
2: Sure.
1: Yep.
0: Or we build up. When are we going to start building up like in Manhattan or something like
1: that? <laughs> You're not going to build up in Tallahassee. <laughs> We've tried building up in Tallahassee. It hasn't worked very well.
0: is it true that you can't build a building higher than the Capitol building? Is that true? I heard that a long
1: time ago. Ah. Uh maybe I mean so you've got the Tennyson Plaza Tower and there are two other big one or two other big condos downtown and they're awfully close not bigger though well I don't know they they might be bigger but maybe not I mean they're close they're close enough that it makes me think that might be true. Um, because they're not clearly bigger, um, but they're they're similar enough in size that yeah they might be just a hair smaller. Yeah.
0: Okay. So where where are we going?
1: Where are we going? I
2: don't
1: know if you that or not. Well, it, it's a hard question to answer because I, I do think we're at the top of the real estate cycle. Certainly, if you think just in terms of the general chronology, you'd expect us to be near the top um, because we were at the top basically. Four 13, 14 years ago, uh, and we bottomed out six to seven years ago. So, you know, it seems like that would put us right back at the top again. But without the supply-demand balance changing, I think we we keep on keeping on. Um, Apart from some other major economic shock that results in a significant decrease in demand, we're not bringing enough new units, we're not bringing enough new affordable units, and we've talked about this in the past too, we're not bringing enough new affordable units online to be able to make a significant impact in the supply and demand dynamic. So unless you have a significant decrease in demand, which could happen a couple ways, significant economic contraction, which reduces demand, potentially people leaving, which affects demand, People get coronavirus and die. Right. Yeah, I didn't want to go there, but yes, Bless people sir. people <laughs> people die. Yes, that affects demand. Um, or for some reason, you know, people well, when people leaving would affect supply as well, right? If they want to move outside of town and they they're now selling their house, they're not a they're not also a buyer. Then that affects the supply demand balance because they're creating a new. Uh, option for for sale someone to buy but they're not also being a buyer so if someone's selling but they're also a buyer that's no change but if they're just listing their house and they're not buying also then that you know, increases supply
0: I just had another random thought Okay. another random question for you what happens in Tallahassee if Florida State all of a sudden shuts down and there is no more Florida State University
1: uh, well you have a pretty major economic contraction
0: or, or not rather that it doesn't – not not that it goes away, but let's say people start doing online school mm-hmm. like they literally are right now. I think a lot of the students come back, came back, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's not too far-fetched to think that universities are just going to be online at some point. Mm-hmm. So what happens in that scenario? Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I've I've been thinking more about online learning recently, specifically with respect to younger children, and so you can argue that there's an age dynamic where this becomes irrelevant, but at least I'm finding with younger children, so my oldest son is now in kindergarten, and when he was in VPK last year, <clears throat> in the spring, coronavirus hit, and so they did the last two and a half months or so online, and that was more or less worthless. You know, at his age, I think there's got to be in-person instruction. Uh, Is online learning possible for young adults and adults? Probably. I mean, you think of things like Rosetta Stone and other online learning platforms for languages, which have been around for a long time, or Khan Academy and other things, you know, places that do more online stuff for math or sciences, they seem to have yeah, pretty good success. So I think there's an age dynamic there. And so for, uh, for college-age kids, maybe online works fine. I personally don't love online learning. I like individual or small group instruction better. So does that vary based on personality type? Probably. Uh, <clears throat> but as long as there's money coming into the university from tuition, whether that's in class or online, the impact is fairly muted. Because professors, administrators, these types of people are still being paid. What effect does that have on facilities, construction, and then down the line on student housing? Those are all questions that you'd have to ask. So if 50% of students are online and not um, on campus or near campus, then you have a significant reduction in demand for those types of housing. Does it affect the... Broader Tallahassee real estate market for people who are no longer in college? Probably not, except insofar as maybe the spread away from campus, which has happened in the last 10 years, starts to contract. Redevelop that. And so people push back towards campus because there are fewer students. Um, That's certainly a possibility. But so long as the university continues to exist and its enrollment numbers stay, by and large, the same or on whatever growth trajectory they've been on, uh, I don't see a major impact to the local economy. Except potentially in those sectors, if you have a high degree of online learning going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, people go into $100,000 of debt or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. something ridiculous. Right. But then they won't save up $10,000 to... Buy a multi-family property and live on one side, mm-hmm. which seems crazy to me. Like just the, just our, our, our whole way of thinking should just be completely like flipped.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Like I understand that higher education. Some people we we want doctors going to mm-hmm. med school. Yep. We want surgeons going to uh, med school and whatnot, mm-hmm. but like especially like. Arts, mm-hmm. just weird stuff like that,
1: right? Think, you know. Well, yeah, I mean the the gender studies degree is completely worthless, right? But uh, you know, we could argue about the value of a liberal arts education, and I think there is some value to that. Um, you know, so you can argue the practical level, like should most people be going to university? Well, what is the purpose of university? If the purpose of university is to get a job. And to acquire a skill, a specific marketable skill, then probably not. If the purpose of you going to university is to make you a better human being by exercising your intellect and your faculties of reason, You could argue that there's value in that, regardless of what your career path ends up being, that there are soft skills, which would translate across a wide variety of potential career fields. But by and large, I think you're right. We shouldn't be just funneling everyone into college, similar to homeownership. We talked about this in a previous podcast where we said there was this, uh, there was the feeling that, okay, we look out. We look at the data. The data says that people who have who own a home have more wealth and therefore the key to homeowner, the key to wealth is home ownership. Right. And we say, well, maybe that's not actually the way it works. Maybe there are other characteristics which lead one to be able to make the right decisions to buy a home and that those skills and that general decision making process translates into wealth. Same thing goes for college. People looked out and said, hey, it just so happens that if you go to college, you make more money. Well, is it because spending four years in a classroom magically results in higher earnings? Or is it that 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, those who are more intelligent went to university. And because they were more intelligent, they made more money. University was just a fine tuning of certain skills and honing certain abilities, which are already there, which other people may not have had, which is why they didn't go to university. I think that's generally true, just like what we just discussed is generally true of home ownership. Uh, it's not that going through college automatically bestows on you, you know, your piece of paper, which results in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of more earning capacity over the course of your career. It is certainly not true today, regardless of whether or not it was ever true. I don't think it was. The degree was not magical. The degree was a signal, right? The degree was a signal to a potential employer that I possess a certain level of skills and abilities. It's almost the reverse now. A piece of paper now from a university is almost... Uh, a signal that you don't know how to make good life choices, because as you said earlier, you're going tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt, often for a degree that's completely worthless. Again, stepping back from the you know liberal arts versus more practical vocational type training uh, discussion, I mean, if you're if you're going in and you're getting indoctrinated in Marxism and critical race theory, you are coming out a Less intelligent individual than when you went in, you're coming out indoctrinated, not educated. I'm gonna clip. I'm gonna clip this so hard, <laughs> Um
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's a good point about it's the same it's the same scenario as people buying homes mm-hmm. that really had no business buying homes. Mm-hmm. The difference is the government or lending practices, as far as I know, haven't changed. Like you can still, anybody can go to college. Like we're letting people go into insane mm-hmm. amounts of debt. Right. And you can't get rid of this debt. Right. Well, as and far it's, as I'm aware. It, well,
1: yeah, it's, it's, it okay. is not dischargeable in bankruptcy so far as I know, perhaps in extreme cases, I heard someone say that maybe in extreme cases, that's, possible. I don't know what those extreme cases are. I have not researched that, but my understanding prior to hearing someone say that on the radio the other day was that it is just not dischargeable at all. I mean, you are shackled to it for life. Yeah. Um, But again, the government gets into an industry, it starts providing loans for that industry and prices skyrocket. Real estate happened in real estate, happened in education. You know. Let me say too about education, higher education, I've seen the price skyrocket. You know, when I was at FSU in the mid-2000s, I mean, my in-state tuition was like $100 a credit hour. I went back, let's see, in 2016, 2017, before, right before and as Noah was born, because I was thinking about going back and getting a second degree in Spanish. And the tuition rate had gone up to like two or $300. Or two, I think it was 250 or $300 a credit hour. Why? What had happened in the span of the time I graduated in 07 to 16 in nine years that the price of tuition would have tripled? That makes no sense, except that it was basically free money. The government handed out free money. Obviously, it's not literally free. Uh, they handed out exceedingly cheap money. They made it Virtually guaranteed to get, just like in the housing bubble, right? So you're basically creating another credit bubble just for student loans, not for housing. And so you've artificially increased demand again. And again, you're funneling people into university, a lot of whom would be better served if they went to some type of community college or vocational training. You are not less of a person. Yeah. If you go to a trade school or a vocational school or a community college, then you are with a four-year degree. A four-year degree does not make you kind, holy, righteous, just, merciful. It doesn't make you any of those things. Or even knowledgeable. Or you, well, right? Yeah, you know, you know, if you go in and you, know, you go into college thinking there are men and there are women, and you come out thinking a man can cut off his Penis and put on a dress, and now he's a woman. Or you know, a woman can cut off her hair and inject testosterone and cut off her boobs, and now she's a man. Again, you've not been educated; you've been indoctrinated. There's a, a there's a huge problem there. Um, but again, being a, a tradesperson does not make you less than. When we were in the process of getting our home renovated, we met my plumbing contractor out of the house and he told me he was paying his basic level service techs, like plumbers who had only been on the job a couple years, guys who were just fixing, you know, leaky hose bibs and and sinks and stuff, basic stuff. He was paying them north of $60,000 a year. His experienced guys who were doing new construction and other more difficult jobs were making just shy of $100,000 a year and we need those we need electricians roofers plumbers ac guys you know we need all of those trades because a lot of those people left those trades during the great recession and they never came back they found other jobs they got into other careers and they never came back so we have a real shortage of tradesmen and a lot of the guys not only are they fewer in number but they're getting older and it's because everyone thinks, oh, well, I want to sit behind a computer and make $100,000 a year. Not everyone can do that. And frankly, that's – there are big negatives to sitting behind a computer all day. You know, I mean, we're, you get all types of health problems from sitting all day. You know, that, again, rabbit hole we can go down. But there's nothing wrong. In fact, more and more, the older I get, there's a great deal right – about using your body to do work. Uh, not that that type of work is mindless. You're not, you know, hammering rocks. Um, but the idea that, you know, you have to sit on a computer and fill in Excel spreadsheets to have your life be valuable and to make a lot of money is crazy. Yeah. But that's kind of where we're at.
0: Yeah, and the irony of that whole thing is, you know, I've, I, I was in a position – uh, previously where basically I was trying to hire techs for mm-hmm. entry-level roles. And they, number one, weren't qualified coming out of computer science, mm. uh, IT programs mm. uh, for for our specific stuff. Mm-hmm. And number two, we couldn't afford to pay them because they had a college degree, which was completely backwards. Mm-hmm. It was like completely backwards. So yeah. we were better off. I mean, we've, we've taken people. We, we basically just invested heavy into training and documentation mm-hmm. and just went all in. Like, okay, we're going to have to teach these people how to do this. Mm-hmm. And we hired people from Publix Deli, mm-hmm. <laughs> banks, mm. and people who just showed the aptitude and like the willingness to learn. Mm-hmm. And they're interested in that sort of thing. Right. Right. And they excelled most of the time, like probably like at least 80% of the time, they excelled much faster than the people who actually were uh, spoon-fed information and learning. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they were just used to just, I can figure stuff out. But it was completely backwards. Like, you know, that's what got me on this big rant. Like, just my experience has been like the whole thing is backwards. Right. Just take it and just flip it somehow. Sure. Back.
1: well and that goes back to my comment that four year university right now in America is much more about indoctrination than it, than it is about education because you're finding people who haven't been to university are still much quicker on their feet <laughs> and much more you know uh, ready and able to learn and adjust than people who have been through a four year university
0: you need to teach them about that's right